Attention, citizens, it's time for Super Pope Science. This is Super Pulp Science, where we talk about how genre gets made. Uh, with me today is a very special guest, a longtime alumni, many years distant from the podcast, but he has returned from the graphic novel grave. Lyndon Rachenka, how are you doing? I'm good, or as as Dan, producer Dan likes to call me, the letterer. The letterer, our regular <laughs> yeah. letterer, but you are so yeah. much more. Also on the podcast, my long-time suffering co-host, Justin Curry, also known as Chasing Artwork Online. How are you, Justin? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. <laughs> are you um, Almost enjoying... Almost couldn't the, stop you. Are you enjoying the post-Dragon uh, Nanny Glow, now that the books have mostly been sent out? Yeah, it's not... I'm not quite there yet. 99% of things have been sent off, but mm -hmm. I still am finishing up three commissions and I have to print the the toy box um, artwork and send those off as well. So I'm like, I can see the finish line is just mm -hmm. over there, but I can't celebrate just yet. So wait, so, so when close. you say the, to the toy box art, are you, are you doing like separate art for, you're talking about the prototypes, right? Yeah, the prototypes come in a custom box with a little booklet um, that's, that's cool. unique just to the toy. Yeah, so I have the booklet all put together, and I was just actually today um, looking at um, some nice blank boxes that'll be easy to blue uh, and and put together a, a box. So it'll come with a, a cool box that I'm hoping people won't want to throw away. That's super cool. Um, yeah, and it's just, you know, again, it comes to that prototyping thing. So these will be, in a way, an experiment that is on display. So that'll be a kind of a fun, fun part of it, too. Um, mm -hmm. it'll, be, it'll be interesting to look back a year or two from now as to what elements ended up on that box art that stayed. Mm. And um, also form and function have a lot to do with box design. So once we settle in on, like, say, a... Um, a die cut printed box that might change a lot of those decisions too so yeah since we're only getting 10 you know it doesn't make sense to really get into like box printing or anything like that but i'd love mm -hmm. to one day be looking at a custom box print job um for like 100 to 500 unique boxes with like a little plastic window like you know that kind of yeah. that kind yeah. of endeavor so that's the goal for someday but right now we're just doing one-offs the chasing artwork toy company yeah now you got it that's right um so lyndon we have not just brought you here to ask us about how great our dragon anything went oh, that's pretty great <laughs> we have brought you here so that we can cross-examine you on all the things that you've been doing in the two years since you were last on the podcast now the dear listener we'll put links uh in the show notes of this one to the episodes that lyndon appeared on previously but as a brief catch-up um, he works as a writer and a letterer uh, in comics, and his last book on our featured on our podcast was called Infinite Universe, which was illustrated by Stephen Call. And since then, he's been doing a ton of writing development in comics. Um, why don't you just give us the laundry list, real briefly, pun intended, and then we'll pick on the ones uh -huh. we want more information about. 
Yeah, okay. So, um, since the Infinite Universe was crazy, because that's, you know, two and a half years ago, I want to say, like, the last time I and, you know, uh, my creative partner in Infinite Universe, Stephen Call, um, were on the show was back when, you know, you were still doing double-digit episode numbers, first off, um, probably, you know, early 30s, somewhere in there in terms of episode numbers. But um, so two years since then, it's a, it's a weird question because um, it's, you know, how creative projects interact with, you know, your everyday life. It's hard. You don't notice the time as it goes by. So since then, I have released... I've released a book called What Will Not Last with Mythos and Inc. Publishing. They're a local uh, small press here and you should go check out their website. They might even actually be open to submissions right now if anyone's listening and is looking to submit. Um, but they took on What Will Not Last and they're, we're, they're going to be taking on Infinite Universe from the sounds of it also and publishing that in 2021. Um, so and that came out. Sorry. I was just going to say for, uh, in the interest of full disclosure, the dear reader should, the dear listener should know that I uh, did a short story uh, in what will not last as well. So I have a vested interest in you seeking it out and purchasing it from Mythos and Inc. It was a fun story, I think, if my memory serves. Yeah, but, it was great. Great little horse um, story. Aside from that, so that book was released by them uh, this past summer, July 2020. And... Um, over the past year, I've been developing a number of other books, uh, two with Stephen Call. Um, we're working on a sci-fi called There Was Another Life, and then a sort of multi-genre. Um, right now, it's a single issue, but we're hoping to expand it into more of an ongoing series called The Laundry Men. And uh, a third book I've been working on is with Christopher Smith, who is also in uh, What Will Not Last. Um, we're doing a book called The Eye in the Mist. And a fourth book I'm working on, it's called Hero Man. I'm doing with Zach Schuster. You can actually see the first couple pages of that book in What Will Not Last because we took that idea and decided we liked it enough that we wanted to run and make a full book into it. So aside, those are the four graphic novel projects I've got going on. Um, you know, since the last time we talked on the show, I've really gotten into more lettering projects. I started trying to write uh, a novel draft, which is its own ongoing separate sort of battle, but it's been a really, it's been two years of huge creative growth, and I couldn't imagine wanting to do anything else. You mean like the thing that you went to school for and got your degree for recently? <laughs> right. Yeah, which that's is exactly what I'm talking is about. Law. <laughs> so on exactly top of all of those things, you also finished law school. I did. Yeah, I finished law school. I worked. Um, in the field for a year, um, my contract with them ended uh, in the summer of 2020. And instead of seeking out a new law job, I've been doing creative stuff instead for the meantime. In the meantime. And then lucky for you, they closed the whole world. Yeah, it's actually, I like to joke that there's never been a more socially acceptable time to not have a quote unquote real job. Yeah, it's perfect. It's perfect timing for that. So, Justin, what I want to know is which of these projects should we cross-examine him on first? Superhero parodies, um, Monsters in the Mist, um, uh, Laundryman, or There Was Another Life, which is like a sci-fi thing. Well, what about, like, because it's been so long since you've been on the podcast, can we get a post-mortem on Infinite Universe? Oh, great point. It's almost sure. like we should revisit 
our previous talking point? Because I think like the first time you were on the podcast, you were talking about finishing it. You guys yep. weren't quite done. And then the second time you were on was right around FanQuest. I actually just listened to this episode recently. Um, and you had, like, was it, I think we it was just, universe that was, that was our launch. launch day. Yeah. Yeah. So let's do a postmortem. How'd things go? So I'm only going to speak for myself here. I just got a message from Mr. Stephen Call saying he is going to try and join us in a few minutes. So I will let him extrapolate on anything that I say. Um, but it's been good. It's, it's, it's weird to think that that was two years ago because I think we've probably only been able to take that book or we were only able to take that book to maybe half a dozen shows before the world closed down. We were supposed to be, this was supposed to be like our first big year of doing con 2020. We had uh, trips booked out, you know, Calgary um, to, to Toronto, to Fan Expo. We were going to hit all the, the big shows. Obviously there was supposed to be our first new Winnipeg convention this year that didn't happen. There's nothing quite like your first book in terms of really opening the door to opportunities for you. So um, when you look at your, like when we look, when I look back at that first book, just no matter what I think of like the content and I loved making the book at the time. And I think that I've really grown as an artist since then. Um, it really is like on the job training. And um, we've like, if we're looking at financial stuff, we've more than made our print costs back on it at this point. And now we're in kind of the, if we could sell the book at shows, we would be in the money-making zone of the book. Um, but the yeah, fact under normal we, circumstances, you'd be in the place where you'd be now selling the book at shows and the book would be paying for your visiting of those shows while correct. you also promote your other new projects at the same time. So you get that stacking yeah. start to occur in your finances, which is a very nice feeling. Uh, I want for the dear listener, could you give them the tale of the tape? Uh, how many pages was Infinite Universe? Um, <laughs> roughly how long did it take you to produce it? And how many copies did you print? Um, so the book is 64 pages. Uh, we printed 750 copies. Um, it took us, I think, from conception of the idea to the actual day we got the books, a full, about a full calendar year. Um, so in the world of um, comic making, but also both of us having kind of full-time jobs, that's pretty quick. So I would never, I have friends that are making comics and it takes them longer and that's, that's fine. That's how it works. Um, but I think if we really like boiled down kind of the concentrated work time out of that, uh, it was about six months of, of real work. You know what the difference is between you and me? I make this look good. And then after that, you put together a little anthology project. I say little, but it, it actually also turned out to be a nice sizable project. Yeah, so that was will not la what will not last. Um, it's 44 pages. So, it's, I mean, it's not huge by any means, but I got to work with, uh, with you, Gregory, and I worked, Stephen came on board to do sort of an epilogue chapter of our Infinite Universe story. Um, but what that book, I got to work with, um, with Christopher Smith and Zach Schuster, and that weird, I call it a weird little book, but I mean, I love that book. It worked in so, it worked in so many practical ways because outside of just doing outside of just having like a, a second book um, for, from a creator standpoint, it let me work with three other artists that I'd never worked with, um, which really, if you're, if you're going to work with another artist on a project, 
you it's better to start with something small because if you commit to a big project and you hate working with each other then that project is not not worthless but it makes it a lot tougher to do so i tried to orchestrate it so that you know six or eight a six or eight page project you do with someone else you can really get a feel of if you're on the same page and you enjoy working with one another and then if you like working with each other you can go and do something bigger which is what i ended up doing with with all of the artists on that book except for you hopefully yet um but the other side of that was as a letterer it worked and a writer it worked as a really good portfolio piece in that it was different genres with four different styles of writing and four different lettering styles and so um it really kind of checked a bunch of professional boxes off as well as having different forms of creative expression one thing i'd be curious to know uh from your perspective as a person who hadn't worked with lots of different artists before that project um how did you as a writer change or approach the scripting process or have to adapt how you work to those different weirdos i know how i forced you to adapt to me but i'd be curious to know who else had different things that they needed from you um yes so you so just for the, the listener following along your and i's short um the light under the door we did mostly marvel method which uh, i had a basic premise and you and i met up and we did some story beats and then you ran off you ran off with those ideas and came back to me with a handful of pages and i got to write over top of them after and i think i was pretty I think I was texting you pretty regularly while I was doing that too. And yeah. got to the point where your response was, you're the writer, you decide. Um, so that's, you know, one end of the spectrum. And then the other end of the spectrum is the full script, which um, is what Steven and I had done for infinite universe to start with. And Chris, Christopher Smith um, and I also did fairly closely for our short called the watcher. Um, Zach and I were somewhere in the middle in that both Zach and I really love like old timey comics. That was kind of the, the aesthetic of the, the, the hero man comic that we were doing. And so because Zach, uh, Zach actually works at a comic book store and has a lot more experience or has read a lot more of those types of comics than I have. So he often came back with changes or I mean changes but improvements on a lot of the ideas that I originally had and so um, all comics as you know as you both know are collaboration um, but there's different levels of bounce back or bouncing back and forth um, so I mean I'm sure um, if like tell me about how Dragon Nanny worked and I'll try and compare it to that in terms I know Justin you just kind of took the art and ran with it didn't you yeah that was a little different this time around because usually when I'm we're working on a book together we're in the same room mm -hmm. and Dragon Nanny really kicked into gear as soon as COVID became a thing mm -hmm. so I basically shut myself away for a couple months and would periodically send Gregory work yeah and then it wasn't until what the project was like 90% done that uh, his workload started up. I kind of, yeah, I kind of took the, the heavy lifting on that project and it was just a, a function of we couldn't, we couldn't work together because we couldn't be in the same room. And that's 
uh, the relationship was just a yeah. little different this time around. Um, I, I think an important, I, yeah, I would, I think an important thing for a comic historian to know too, or anybody listening who is familiar with the uh, foibles of how Marvel style works. Mm -hmm. We tended to, to do up until now, Justin and I tended to work Marvel style, also Marvel method where I would give loose plot ideas. He would rough out the page. Then we discuss what goes where. And because we were in the same room, all that stuff that normally is specific things in a script, we'd hash out together and he'd often just say, Oh, this, that, the other thing, he'd move the images around and bam, we'd be on it. This time around, we worked kind of like Jack Kirby and uh, Stan Lee, where in this case, Justin was the Jack Kirby who went away, did most of the work of getting the beats of what happens where, where the exciting parts, where the heart is. And I came in at the end. And one thing we did differently than uh, Stan and Jack is we credited it appropriately when the book was finished. I was going to say. Yeah. You're not going to retcon and take all the credit for it in 10, right. 10 no, years or anything? Right. So we did it like the opposite. We did, we did the workflow like Stan and Jack but we credit yeah. it like it should have been credited from the beginning. Yeah. So I think it's sort of similar. Um, Cause you and I, when you and I did our short and it, we weren't in the same room by any means. So it was very similar where um, you gave me the pages and then I had to figure out how to write them. Um, I think Steven is waiting to join this call now. He most certainly is. So without further ado, I will admit him into the waiting room from the waiting room from purgatory. From the waiting room. What's so funny, Edwards? Your boy Captain America over here. The best of the best of the best, sir. With honors. You know, he's just really excited and he has no clue why we're here. Hello, Stephen. Uh, hello. Welcome to the call. Welcome to Super Pulp Science. Oh, is that where I am? We were just saying we haven't been here in two and a half years. It's been a bit. Absolutely. Yeah. They were just, uh, they asked for a post-mortem of how we felt about Infinite Universe. A postmortem. Yeah. Like we did the launch the last time we were on, we did the launch at FanQuest. Mm -hmm. And now it's been two years and we took it to some shows and it's led to some other stuff. <laughs> and um, they want to know what thoughts we had post Infinite Universe and where we are now. Uh, if you I, would say, I would say, coming from an artist's perspective, um, I had a lot further to go after Infinite Universe. Um, I was very proud of that book visually and I think it does look really good, but I, I didn't think once I was there, I had this thought where I'm like, Oh, I don't know if I could learn more. I should just keep making stuff that looks like this. And it just, I just got better and better in my own opinion. You're um, a whole other level now. Yeah. Yeah. And then as well, as far as the actual book itself, like, uh, I mean, I don't know if this podcast knows, I know you guys obviously know I took a bit of a break from comics after, uh, after infinite universe and let's uh, tell the story let's yeah. tell the story of how steve quit comics <laughs> because of linden yeah, yeah. how i yeah. drove steven out of comics drove me out of comics no i i after <laughs> infinite universe uh, i it's definitely a lesson i learned um about setting i called it then synthetic deadlines for yourself giving giving yourself a reason to be at a certain stage in your career at a certain time and like living by that just spins you out of control. Um, I had uh, my my lady who I live with, who one day, if COVID permits, I'll be married to. Um, she was in nursing school and I was like, you know, I knew where she'd be at career wise when she got out and I had this need to match her 
and and like be right there with her when she got out and at that it was an impossibility but somehow i convinced myself i could do it and then when i didn't do it i was like well this isn't for me i'm out i need a real job mm-hmm. um and i quit my job at my day job which is at memory express i stopped doing comics i got a full-time job doing software sales and I slowly stepped down into a depression. I don't know if it was depression per se, but I just stepped down out of control uh, in my brain. And, and I realized it was because I wasn't drawing every day or, or every other day at the very least. I was, uh, I was doing something I wasn't really enjoying and pushing myself for goals I wasn't interested in. And, uh, and then I, everything kind of clicked back into place. I cut my old job back. I went back to comics and I've uh, been grinding away at stuff ever since. So you're skimming over a lot of details, but I, I am, what, but that's the, that's the crux. That was yeah. the answer to the question, I guess. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, I just want, I want to fill in some holes though. Also, yeah. um, because right when, right before you joined us, I was talking about what will not last the, the anthology comic with everyone else. Yeah. And what we don't, and I don't know if I've, you know, I've said this to you before, if I've said it to anyone before, but that book exists because you quit comics. Yes. Um, yeah. Because what had happened was shortly before you had told me that um, we were talking about doing another book and I had, you know, I had talked to a couple of other people like Zach and Chris about maybe doing something in the future, but we weren't really pursuing it very hard. And when you decided that you were going to step back, um, this is, you know, where we talk about writers versus artists. Um, as a comics writer, I can't make comics without an artist. Like if you, Steven, wanted to make a comic, you could do all your own art and you could write your own book and you could make an, your own book. Yeah. I can't do that. Um, yeah. So when you stepped back, I had to look around and at the landscape that I had at the time and try and chart this new path forward. You even started teaching yourself how to draw. Yeah, I mean, that <laughs> got quickly fell by the wayside because it takes so much work to do. And I would like to come back to it eventually, but it hasn't mm. happened yet. Mm. Um, but yeah, it very much came down to a, a position of like, you realize in that moment kind of how powerless you are in the industry if you don't have the full skill set. Sure. Um, so it really drove me into making that second book. And then I remember, um, you and I went, we were, we went out for drink one day, like to catch up and you just kind of like casually slid in that you had started to think about doing comics again. Yeah. Yeah. That was, was that when you got back from Paris or something? (laughs) I don't know. No. Um, I mean, Maybe, maybe it was in that range. It might've been right around that time or right before that. Yes. Mm -hmm. But I was just like itching because I remember doing the four pages for um, what will not last Um, that in that time, like I I was six months at that other job in that time. That Mm -hmm. was like the, like the best I felt like challenge wise, career wise or whatever, Mm -hmm. like doing making those four pages then I did that entire time learning a new job uh, with, mm-hmm. uh, albeit interesting people, but still like 
I, I, you were like, I was like, oh, I'll do four pages. It's, it, I'll do it. And then I started drawing. I'm like, oh yeah, okay, I'll do this. And then those four pages look better than like any page in the in the original book. And the I'm original like, book, oh, yeah. I'm like better, and yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, just that was what that started me thinking of like, of like coming to that conversation where I casually slipped that in there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah, to yeah. answer your question, Gregory, about the postmortem of Infinite Universe and how what will not last occurred um it almost all happens on a linear timeline and that's why you need to finish and make a, a first book um, what i find there's a couple of things i want to point out number one this moment where linden's like okay i don't have an artist fine i'll just draw myself <laughs> oh shit that's really hard <laughs> but like live been in your brain for that moment yeah um, but also one thing that I really want to point out here, because we've talked about it a lot on the podcast tangentially, but I don't know if specifically that what you went through, Stephen, is something that a lot of people who are creative and, and find joy and, and inspiration in just making things go through, which is the idea that in order to be of use to the people around them, the time they put into things should make money as opposed to what I think you discovered by your example, the time you put into things helped make Steven and it's Steven who your wife is going to get married to not yeah. your wallet. And I think she'd rather have a full Steven than a full wallet. As she told me hundreds of times during this period, like, like it's like, I knew that she was like, super supportive thought i was amazing what i did loved that i did it and and loved that like i did a day job that made me happy while i was doing this thing but i was so stuck in these this idea of these like these deadlines i'd given myself so stuck in this like goal for myself that mm -hmm. even that almost didn't feel enough to keep me on track and then like like but then at the end you like you realize it's like i don't know like i don't know how to, how to explain it but at the end you just realize like she was right the whole time and that um, happiness matters. Yeah, yeah, and that happiness matters. Like, like how happy she saw me when I would draw or just come home from my job at, at Memory Express, just grinding away with those guys at work too. And uh, and then the change it was to the other job, um, the change I, I like I became. I was starting to become just like this, like grinding for no reason for really like unachievable goals. Like it was a new sales team. They kept changing the goals and like just losing my mind. Um, and just the, the difference in person that I was in those two stages in my life. I'll tell you something right now. I know air and that was an air. It's like something that's wearing air. Like a, like a suit, an air suit. So tell us about Laundryman and how you came to work on it together, how that idea came out. I don't know too much about its genesis. Um, whose idea was it? Where did it start? Whose idea is it now? <laughs> tell us it was my idea. It was my, okay, yeah. I think Lyndon said this before. Uh, a lot of our, our ideas come from a conversation that we have. Uh, we, we've both talked about this before and, yeah. and it's one of us it, and like, it has been like, uh, like in this case, it was, it was me going to have this idea and then, and then we just start fleshing it out like crazy. So mm -hmm. the idea was I wanted to do um, like men in black, 
but not a big organization. I wanted it to look like a big organization. The idea that the black suits that show up at supernatural crime scenes um, look like this big organization, but it's these two guys who work out of their apartment and they just hoodwink the government into contracting them all these jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, so they just always look like it's this big group because they, they always look, everybody looks the same in a black suit. Um, and I think, did that? No, no. Willstead, we had this other idea a while back that a lot of cues that are taken in laundrymen come from this idea from Willstead, but that that was different. That was local cops, right? That wasn't... Yeah, that was a mix of local cops and um, it was very much a small town vibe. Right. This was more, you came with this idea of like the men in black and like they were almost like ghostbusters, but they also had a touch of the like um, the the Jules Pulp fictiony scenes where they're the two guys with the car and the guns in the in the trunk, and um, we started to flesh out this idea of these two guys, like you said, that work out of their apartment and they do all this like supernatural stuff, and it eventually in our conversation started to snowball into um, really a type of not not quite X Files type thing, but a project that was very mm. much could be multi-genre or x-files meets supernatural right. type yeah. of book like it didn't they could we we designed something that gave us free will on like the creatures or the the offensive that they would come up against like yeah. it, it, you know it could be secret organizations it could be werewolves it could be aliens aliens ghosts yeah, yeah. We, we wanted uh, we wanted that freedom and kind of realized like there are tons of shows out there but it's all about the characters who do it's all about Dean and Sam or Mulder and Scully, like the, the characters mm-hmm. who do it and like the, the way they are with each other. And then it's the monster of the week idea that we really liked. Yeah. yeah. So the, the concept of the laundryman, what I really, what draws me to it is that versatility to it, that we can cross pollinate different genres. Um, we could do, you know, um, in, in a pure hypothetical, we could have, we could be doing a crime story where the guys are, tracking down something that's mob related and then we find out that the mob is actually run by aliens type thing like that's you can do anything in that sort of or a grand sect of wizards yeah so you can do anything in that landscape so uh we were steven and i were lucky enough that we got some grant funding for it from the winnipeg arts council and uh we have been chugging along on it chugging away at it for the last couple of months hopefully we apply we put in for some more grants and uh, I think the idea is as There's long more as more to apply for next spring too, right? Yeah, yeah. As long as grant money comes in for it, we can continue to keep doing it, and we'll just keep doing it as long as we can. Because yeah. ostensibly, with that sort of world, you can tell an infinite number of stories. Well, one thing I liked about the idea of Laundryman was that all this stuff happening—it's happening in the normal world that we live in—but it's two guys keeping it under wraps the entire time. So it's completely unbelievable. But yeah, um, I wanted to ask, like. When, when Gregory and I usually start a story, mm-hmm. um, a lot of times the match that starts the fire is a single drawing, like a single image will kind of then be the starting point for the rest of the story. Yeah. With you guys, is it you, was it the writing that came first for this project or was it some drawings that, that started it all off? I think it's almost never drawings. It's, no, it's an idea. I'd like to say it's always that idea conversation where we just, we, we, we do a literal story break, like inadvertently. We'll be going to, going to buy comics 
mm-hmm. one of us has the idea and then we just start breaking down that idea. Like, like there was another life. We did it sitting at a convention table. Yeah. yeah. Like if I, if I, all of our story breaks are one of us comes to the other one with an idea. Like in this example, it would be like, Hey, what do you think of this idea of these two guys that solve supernatural crimes? Um, and they're kind of like the Ghostbusters or like the FBI, which was like, I think was the main idea that you were talking about at the time. Oh yeah. And yeah. Like my, small business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And my response yeah. is always first off, um, why is that different than something that already exists? And like, how can we make it cool? How can, mm-hmm. how can it, how can we make it fun? Yeah. Lots of cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if we said it at the yeah. right time, then sure. Yeah. And, uh, ambiguous timeline ambiguous time frame too old cars new tech new that's uh yeah but one of i think it was actually gregory gave me this idea when we were talking about stories once um i was trying to describe a story idea to gregory and his response to me was so how is that different than anything else that already exists yeah like what's what's really the point here well, and you know, the, it wasn't just a cast shade. It was just that sometimes people will talk about the big overarching themes and ideas of a story without mm-hmm. getting into the nitty gritty. Like you can really, you could really take say like two genre shows like Supernatural and X-Files and you could really say they're essentially the same show. Yeah. Right? What makes mm-hmm. them different is what makes their fans engage with them. Mm-hmm. right and so if you ask yourself like what's different you know ask yourself right now pick your favorite show you know dear listener or a novel series or video game you're playing and if you were to make a story with that exact same plot how could you get away with not being sued what were the changes that you'd have to make so that it would be uniquely yours right daredevil and batman are pretty damn close as characters right but it's the unique changes in their drives and their and their motivations that actually propel them into story after story after story that doesn't feel like a copy of the other thing. Yeah, so just in that vein, and I've heard from a professional standpoint, and I've read slash heard um, conflicting opinions on the elevator pitch that is, you know, X thing meets Y thing, which is just two like you're trying to describe your concept as two pre-existing IPs. And some people are very for that because it kind of gives you a brief glimpse into it. And some people are very much not for it because it's, um, I don't remember exactly what the criticism was. Maybe it was that it didn't show enough originality or it didn't really tell you what the, was in, what's going on in the project. Um, but I've heard very conflicting opinions on it. And I just wanted to know what your opinions were on it. As with most things, Writing is about knowing who your audience is. And Mm -hmm. so if you are pitching to people who have not very much time and are greenlighting a lot of projects or redlighting a lot of projects, they need to know very quickly what the flavor is. And it can be extremely useful in that regard to say, you know, Laundry Man is X-Files meets Ghostbusters plus Home Alone, you know, just throw something else in there. Uh, To give you a sense of um, what it is that the structure of the story will feel like, even if those aren't the real beats. 
people who are saying like, oh, I hate doing that or I don't like doing that or they really don't like it. They're right not to because it doesn't really encapsulate the originality of a new story, right? Mm -hmm. You can take um, any book off any shelf and find something to compare it to and then try to pitch it that way. But it's not. You're not really describing it. That's right. What we find is really useful is when a person only has three minutes, like say at a show or in a brief conversation or um, even online to sum up your story quickly in a way that categorizes the audience, right? Mm -hmm. Um, We were saying, what was our dragon nanny line, uh, Justin? Wally meets- Uh, It's land before time. Oh yeah, Wally meets land before time. Yeah. I, I think more so, like, not just to pitch a project, but I use elevator pitches more for speaking at, like, a show or to somebody who's not in the same, who doesn't speak the same language that I do, that you know, that isn't into comics and sci-fi and fantasy. How do you describe these stories to them? Well, you try to find a common, a common language that they'll understand, like movies or or famous books. Like, it's kind of condensing your ideas down so somebody who doesn't live in your world can understand. Mm-hmm. That's what I find they're useful for. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. People who are looking for gifts love those kinds of little summations, right? Because what they're yeah. saying is like, oh, I'm looking for a gift. Oh, well, I know my husband or daughter or uh, wife or girlfriend or on and on and on really likes, likes yeah. Ghostbusters. So we'll give this a shot. Yeah, you almost need to, as soon as you attach a household name to something you're working on, people can then grasp at it, you know, grasp the idea. So it's just another example then of marketing to pre-existing audiences, which is, from what I understand, the reason why most movies nowadays are sequels or reboots, because people are already familiar with the property. Uh, It's definitely made of the same stuff, yeah. I mean, and it's, you know... We're being quite reductive, but the idea here is yeah. that anything you need to do to make someone standing in front of you really see what's in front of them mm-hmm. can be useful. The problem is that we have a hard time in society separating what is good from what is our favorite, as Howard Chagan likes to point out. And so, uh, there are plenty of people who sometimes see those comparisons to very popular things um, as actually reducing them to just popular items. And why this is important is because some things um, are cool, so they're popular, and some things are cool because they are popular. And if somebody is of discerning taste, comparing it to simply something that's well-known can be a very big turnoff to someone who's looking for something new. So mm-hmm. you kind of have to know your audience, you know? Yeah, um, at, at TCAF, for example, the Toronto Comics Arts Festival, better to tell your full pitch and what's really going on in your story than it is to compare it to something else because people are looking for originality there. Mm-hmm. At a busy New York Comic-Con where the, where the, you know, crowd is a surging river you only have a moment so i was thinking more the uh the grandmas in the bookstores that want to know what this graphic novel is about because their niece might like it you know Mm -hmm. or their yeah granddaughter yeah Yeah. those are the the most common conversations that i i pull out the elevator pitch type conversation 
And that makes sense because yeah. now that I'm thinking on it, it might my the the criticism of the elevator pitch that I read may have been when I was reading Save the Cat this past year, <laughs> um, which is you know a screenwriting book, and I think the the writer was not a fan of um, elevator pitches when they're looking for original original ideas. No, for sure, yeah. And when you're dealing with producers, some of them love those kinds of reductive pitches, and some of them, the moment you do it. They feel like, oh, is that all you got? That's as creative you can be as compared to something else? Okay, well, mm -hmm. you know, don't waste my time. So it really depends on your audience. We had an unauthorized landing somewhere in upstate New York. Okay, keep your ears open on this one. We're not hosting an intergalactic kegger down here. Now, Stephen, I have a question for you. Mm -hmm. How do you draw? What do you draw on? What is your preferred medium? Mm. Uh, uh, digital. Digital. I do... I do everything. I've got a what's a 22 inch Wacom tablet right here. Um, I, I do everything on here. Um, Which is new. You you were just talking about getting that. I think the last time we, think, we spoke in person, you hadn't pulled the trigger on it yet, though. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, because I had a small one, and it was the one with the built-in computer, and yeah. so it had like a battery. But I never used the computer, and then eventually the uh, charging port cooked the LVDS cable that connects the screen to the computer and it just died on me. Um, so yeah, I got this guy, the big one, which bigger is better with these things apparently, um, <laughs> which I'm sure you know all too well, Justin. <laughs> um, and yeah, I, I, this, is, this is what I use. And then Photoshop uh, would be my uh, software of choice. Um, are we just looking for the practical or like actually how i draw well both things i'm i'd be curious <laughs> to know in photoshop do you do you design your own brushes are you using a, a mixed set of brushes what's your uh, yeah. line point like i want some deep i want some deep nerd tool dive here. okay okay i use um i i so in photoshop i don't make my own brushes i I've, i i have a couple that i've like attempted to make and through a comedy of errors have made like a pretty good texture brush or something like that um but for the longest time I used Kyle brush um, who he was independent for a while. And then Adobe like bought him or something. So his brushes come with Photoshop CC now. Um, and then there's a company called true grit brushes or true grit is, I think it's true grit. Yeah. True grit brushes. And they make like vintage looking brushes, like rusty nibs and dead paint brushes and amazing stuff. Uh, so I use one of those, but for the longest time, I would just use like a, a digital sketch pencil brush to draw everything. And then inking, I would, I would just use a, um, a, uh, I guess it, yeah, it's just a, a, just a circle shrunk right down on dissolve. Cause I don't like having all the aliasing and stuff just because sometimes you, uh, sometimes you have to select all the ink and change the color or select a certain amount and match it and I, I don't like when you do that then you have all these little white dots everywhere and then you got to go in and select everything yeah, yeah, i hate it um so yeah and then but for laundry men i'm using a slightly distressed brush I, I, just to experiment i don't know how it's going to come out on print it looks pretty much the same i get a little bit more of like a a fade with it though because like when i like pull off the page it kind of fades as opposed to just stopping which is pretty cool isn't that a function of the pressure sensitivity of your mm -hmm. it's of like a it's like pressure sensitivity is linked to opacity and 
uh, Phil and um, something else. I can't remember. Um, but yeah, so it makes it look like, like you're using a pen and you're getting like a better tails on your brushes and stuff. Um, but that's pretty much it. And then coloring, I, I don't think, I don't think I color traditionally, like not like, I don't think I color like a lot of other digital colors. I could be wrong. I might. Um, but from what I've seen, I don't like, I flat like everybody else, but, um, I, I can't really explain how I do it, but like, I, I just, I cover it in gradients and textures and, and I'll use like half tone brushes or, um, like brushes like the Kirby crackle or whatever it might be. And then I'll like select it and delete it so that I have all the selection of everything I've done and I'll like fill it or use a different brush inside that selection to make like create like textures and stuff like that. It's hard to explain, but if you looked at the art that I'm doing, you kind of understand what I mean, but I'll like, yeah, I don't know, crazy fills and stuff. So you can't look at it cause you don't post enough of it on the internet. So you gave us the thumbs up. up. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Take that, internet. It's yet. Um, Gregory, did I hear you say recently that you started drawing on a tablet? What? Yeah, yeah, a little bit. So <laughs> you mean that little five-inch one on your laptop? Like this? No, that's in my trackpad. And that's, uh, <laughs> how big is that? That's like uh, six inches, right? Six by six. Yeah. Um, it, which is uh, quite wonderful to use. So for the dear listener, I mostly just draw on the pad on my laptop. But lately, I've been wild. <laughs> just with like the tip of my finger, just drawing away. But uh, been experimenting with a new drawing process, um, which is really as simple and uh, reductive as my old drawing process. When I like take, take a uniball pen and I draw it in my sketchbook, um, if you, it makes what is the rough equivalent of a five-point rounded line on Photoshop. So then what I started doing was figuring out, could I draw some things in my sketchbook and then finish that drawing and it feel the same with a tablet by just using a five-point rounded line? Like no flourishes, no fancy brushes, nothing. Just the barest, simplest. And if I couldn't make it look and be as fun as drawing in my sketchbook, then I have no use for a tablet. Get the hell out of my life. Um, so I've been experimenting. I've had the time this year to do that experimentation and I've been really liking it. But one of the reasons why I like it, I realize is because of one of the reasons why I don't like drawing with a tablet or on screens. It has nothing to do with the texture, like it fine, it has nothing to do with the smoothness. I like all that, that's a lot of people's criticisms. It has everything to do with this burden of choice that I find heaped upon me when I pick up the pen and I have to figure out what line am I going to use. I yeah. hate that. It's just, it's, it's, it's literally an infinite choice. And so what I told myself I would do is I'd learn by switching mediums, but not process for the first little while and just get really used to, can I draw well with a very simple set of rules? I use three gray gradients and only three in these illustrations. Um, I use one line weight, regardless of whether it's uh, foreground, midground, or background, which is a little bit of a Jeff Darrow thing. Um, although no one can ever be as good as he is at doing that same thing. Um, but then I just use a gradient uh, or rather an opacity setting to change the foreground, midground, and backgrounds to be a bolder line. So if it's only 80% there, it reads a little bit like gray. 
And so it pushes things into the background and a solid black line pulls things right into the foreground. And just playing with it that way for the last, you know, six, seven months. And I've been pretty happy with some of the results. I don't know if you've been checking my Instagram, a lot of those uh, black and white drawings, that's how I'm doing all that. Oh, nice. Yeah, I find the you said burden of choice. I, I agree. Like it's it, it's kind of nuts, especially when, like I said, that Adobe purchased. I don't know if it was his company or they hired him. This, that Kyle Webster is his name, and all of a sudden, all these amazing brushes you used to like pick and choose and pay for are completely free, or or included with your Photoshop subscription. And so now, like, there's just so many brushes to choose. So when I'm doing like a book, I have like like my main inking brush, my main pencil brush, and then like three texture brushes. And then I don't vary from that. Cause I know as long as I'm using those a certain, the pages are going to be a certain level of consistent yeah. throughout. I it. have a, a technical question for you, Photoshop fellows. Hmm. Um, I don't play around with too many Photoshop brushes, but every so often I'll find one that I really love and then I'll lose it and I'll, <laughs> I won't be able to find it again in that huge swath of forementioned Photoshop brushes. How do I keep my favorite brushes game, somewhere to find? So <laughs> if you, you have to remember to do this and I, and I've been in this boat a lot and I have completely forgotten to do this, but uh, if you find a brush you like to use, I have, you know, when you open up like a, I mean, on the brush, I click the, the main click and the, the, the brush panel pops up. Um, mm -hmm. I have a folder that's just called Steve and, and whatever I'm using at the time, I drag it into that folder. So brushes that I like okay. uh, are in a separate folder. And I Is know they're creating a brush swatch. Um, no, just, just literally making a full, like, it's like having okay. a little cup on my desk for the brushes right. I like to use. Um, and yeah, I just drag it in there and, and, and it stays there. Um, and maybe there's like seven brushes in there um, for ones that I know I use. But I have done that, Justin, where you spend a good part of an hour scrolling and clicking every brush. Yeah. <laughs> and you may have gone past it, but, but it, it never looked exactly the same as it did before. And yeah, that's, a, that's terrible. <laughs> I think an important thing for the dear listener to know as to why we're so obsessive with this is that... You want to think about drawing as a language. And once you learn how to speak your, the language you use to make line and form and shape uh, and composition, certain line weights and certain line textures translate well in your brain when you see them. You, you can immediately extrapolate a single mark into an entire illustration in that and, and have it affected by that line. And so when you find what works and what can speak your visual language, it can be really hard to break the habit of it, which has been my problem, um, is that, you know, whatever, 18 books later, and I'm only now starting to use a tablet, right? It, you are afraid that the magic of how you work will disappear the moment you change it. There's almost a superstition in that if I yeah. change how I work now, then I won't be able to do any work that's as good as the last work I did. Oh, listen, monkey boy. Compared to you humans, I'm on the top rung of the evolutionary ladder. So can it, all right? Well, something, I'll butcher this, um, but uh, something that got me was, it, it was a video or, or 
or whatever, someone was describing style. It's like, well, well, what's my style? How do I develop a style? And style is based, what they were saying is style is what comes out after you make the same mistakes over and over and over and over again. I think Gregory uh, said that. Oh, it was you. Okay. Yeah. See, it, it was that good. It's become an ominous, legendary thing in my head. There you go. <laughs> I'm sure I heard it somewhere. It must be a... Uh... It must be a transmission, but yeah, it's just a mistake that you make all the time. Becomes yeah. So as you switch mediums, as long as you keep that in your head and, and just keep pushing in whatever medium you're, you're doing, you're going to land back on that style or, or, or an evolved version of that style. It's just a matter of learning what you're using. I think. I do have a question for the three of you. Um, keying in on something that Gregory said, is it a genuine worry for you superstitious lot um, that your future work might not ever be as good as your past work? Mm -mm. Yes. Yeah. It's not actually rational, but it's definitely lingers. But once you've done projects, you realize, nope, you're always getting better. Yeah. Well, and then we're very different stages though. Like, like I want Justin's answer still. Go for it. Um, so Gregor and I were actually talking about this in the car the other day. And I, I agree with Gregory, like, as long as you're, you're drawing, you are, you're getting better and whatnot. Um, but to compare it to something like a, uh, like a professional sport, when, when somebody's like about to be in like a boxing fight or, mm-hmm. or do their, their stint at the Olympics, they train to a point where they're peaking. They're yeah. at like their physical peak, which yeah you can't maintain for forever. It's only, you're kind of with that for a couple of weeks. And if you keep pushing yourself, you'll eventually start to get overtired and it's actually, it's bad to overtrain. So yeah. I kind of noticed, I was, I was listening and learning about that. And then I kind of noticed it during Dragon Nanny when I was in like near the end of the book, it was a 104 page graphic novel. I'd never written, like drawn anything quite to that scope and worked on it quite as steadily as I did. Um, that project and like around page 70 80 to 100 i was more efficient and seemed to be just getting things done so much smoother and better than ever before and even now like a couple months later like i i don't feel like i'm quite that anymore like i was mm-hmm. i was just in such a zone for for a couple weeks in that book and and I don't have it again. So I think there are like, there are peaks and valleys in your productivity and your skill set. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So that was just something neat. I noticed about myself in that project and, and working after. Well, the only reason I ask that question is because it's very similar to a story that, um, that Scott Snyder told me in the writing class that I took with him. Um, for those listeners that aren't aware that aren't comic readers, I guess. Your best um, friends with Scott, Scott Snyder. <laughs> no, no, no. Scott Snyder uh, is a well-known DC writer. Um, he's known for writing Batman. He's done a, a number of um, solo projects also. But he, I took a writing class with him at the beginning of the, the lockdown. And what he, that one of the stories he told us was about when he first got onto Batman, um, which was very early in his writing career compared to a, a number of other people that would get a large title. And he was telling us about a conversation that he had with Neil Gaiman, actually, at one point in which he, ta- um, he was talking to Neil Gaiman about how he was worried that he wasn't ready yet or good enough to be writing Batman at that point. 
and Neil Gaiman not laughed at him, but um, almost calmed him by saying that you're worried about not being good enough right now. And someday you're going to look back and worry that um, you're not as good as you used to be. So it really is almost an indication of um, where you are in your career or where you are in your trajectory to have those sort of over overlying fears or overarching fears, it seems. Well, and I'll add another wrinkle. I change styles fairly often. Like I go through periods where I'll do lots of like Underworld, for example, tons of straight up photo collages are the illustrative elements of Underworld. Um, Mm -hmm. But then right after that, working on Midnight City, much more line work and drawing and the collaging became background elements and texture and color. You could compare two pages of those books side by side and it would almost feel like a different person had done both books. Um, and the work I'm doing now on this Moon Patrol project, same thing. If you compare them, you know, I was, this is part of the conversation Justin and I were having as we were Santaing Dragon Nannies. Um, what happens <laughs> if people are like, oh, I've heard of this guy. Ooh, I like his work. And then they come to the new thing And the style is so different that it actually drives them Mm -hmm. off. And I can, the analogy I would make here is we've all done that with musical artists. I was going to say that's something that happens in music very often. Yeah. Yeah. And it can be, you know, it can, in a lot of ways, it can be the end of people's careers if you change your style too dramatically. Um, And there's another thing I heard uh, Jim Rugg say, uh, it was either on a podcast or on their own video stream, um, Comics Kayfabe. But um, in comics, in art in general, commercial art, you get paid to repeat yourself. Mm. And so yeah. if you change your style too often, you're trying to convince people that they should take a chance on it. That can, that can be, you know, it can be nerve wracking, but it's also part of what we were talking about at the beginning, Steve, where like, I just don't feel like myself if I'm not, totally blowing up my own process and starting at the beginning again every couple of years for mm-hmm. sure like I, I to for like to compound on all that like with Lyndon's question as well i'm at very much more of an early act one stage of my career so like i don't have 18 books under my belt to uh, look back and go am i better or worse than i am now so i don't know maybe that's a benefit of being early i i, I think i can only get better um, but who knows, I might, I might have that going forward. Um, but at the same time, I, I, I definitely question myself every now and again, where I'll go from, cause I, we, we've got one book, an epilogue and several pitches under our belt, under, at least under my belt, as far as work I've done. Um, and like, sometimes like one pitch is going to be a lot darker, uh, like way more ink than another one. And then with laundry men, like, it's almost like if it's dark, it's super inked. And then if it's bright out, it's very like super lit with lighter line work and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I find myself wondering like, am I, am I falling off and on a style, like what's better and what's not. And, and really it's just, I'm getting the page done and, and, and and it's just what's coming out is what's working. Um, Yeah. We'll, we'll circle back on you after uh, the 300th issue of Laundryman. Um, Yeah. We can t- we can call up Todd McFarlane and tell yeah. him we're coming after him at that point. Yeah, um, and we'll see how you feel if you think that uh, you have regressed or if you're still getting better. Yeah, I'm pretty sure Todd's <laughs> gotten better at being over 300 issues. So, 
Well, if you're going to compare someone who's doing 300 issues of their own book, you, you can only look at Eric Larson, unfortunately, not Todd McFarlane. Yeah, yeah, it's true. <laughs> right? Just, uh, just uh, I don't mean to like stake out my loyalties so obviously there, but uh, <laughs> whatever you think about Savage Dragon, the one thing that you, you can't deny about it is that it's the, uh, it's the complete work of a single person. Um, yeah. and so like it or or lump it they are the, it's them it's they like literally it. the yeah. life's work right yeah you could say that about the lettering on spawn that's right <laughs> that's true same, yeah. same every guy issue. every single issue yeah I don't know um, if you knew that, Justin. The letterer from Spawn. No. They're at like issue 310 or something right now. And it's been the same letterer for every single issue. Weren't we joking a while back that Daddy you would work. send your lettering profile to Todd McFarlane? For the to one job. You get a job. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can you put me on the list for when he retires? <laughs> yeah. Well, what was funny about that is that Todd McFarlane, whatever his company is called, they accept portfolio submissions, but only by physical mail. So you actually have to mail in your portfolio. And I was joking about doing it. And your response was, what, you're going to apply to the one lettering position that they have by the one guy who's done it for over 30 years? <laughs> yeah. Okay, you're frightening your partner. I haven't been training a partner. I've been training a replacement. Well, let me yeah. to ask you, Lyndon. You've lettered a lot of projects in the last little while. Um, I have. How do you approach varying that style and maybe just for the sake of the dear listener who doesn't quite understand what we mean by lettering lay out what your job feels like um and what it is how you do it like uh, imagine a person listening doesn't know what a letterer does yeah so the a letterer is the person who does the typesetting and all the comics that you read so um, a writer is the person who writes the script and the funny thing about being a writer is your your audience as a writer is your your artist and that's it. Um, but the, the letterer takes the script and the completed artwork from the artist and they um, typeset that script over top of the art. So you're creating uh, word balloons with the text. You're manipulating the text so that it emphasizes and bolds what it's supposed to. Um, sound effects often are done by a letterer, though not exclusively. It's very common for artists to do their own sound effects also. Uh, so my job as a letterer. Um, the letterer, as Dan likes to say, um, is there's to, four errs, right? Yeah, there's multiple errs. Like yeah, starting a car. Yeah, <laughs> er, 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 er. a really bad old car, like my car. Um, but so your job is to uh, bring out the the story in the art. It's not. I don't know if that's the best way to say it. It's to um, most clearly display the intention of what the writer has written over top of that art. A lot of people often say that um, a good letterer, it's in my head now, a good letter right that time is um, invisible. And I don't know if that's necessarily true, but it is true that as a letterer, you want your work to be in sync with the art style that you're lettering over top of. So I know there's a number of letterers out there that, um, I'm not going to call them flashy, but I look at their their work when they post just like a word balloon or something, a sound effect that they've been working on. And I go, oh, that looks super cool. And it's super difficult to make. And I probably couldn't make that yet if I tried to. And then I take some sort of comfort 
um, when I realized that that sort of style, something that's so extravagant or something that's too extravagant, uh, doesn't have a lot of widespread use. Like it, it's something that has to be very specifically made. Uh, that so provokes a, a question. Do you have a question? I have a question. That provokes yeah. a question. Um, so when I'm, when I'm drawing something different and, and, and Gregory talked about this as well, like uh, style changing from mm -hmm. idea to idea, you're talking about making the lettering fit the art it's, it's over top of. Yeah. Do you find you have to tweak, not just for the art it's over top of, but for the actual tone of the story itself, like writing art, do you mm -hmm. find you're trying to find a, a new type of lettering or a way to tweak the lettering from book to book where you're just like, like, this is the style that it's going to be for this book. Absolutely. So yeah. actually one of the first things that the first thing I do when I start on a new lettering project is I just spend an hour looking at fonts because you, mm -hmm. you have to take the, the art and you take whatever the first word balloon is going to be on that first page. And you have to look at it and go, I have to pick a font that I'm now going to use for the foreseeable future on this book. And it needs to look like it belongs with this art. And so I spend a lot of time going through my ever growing collection of fonts that I've purchased and downloaded and then looking online at ones that I haven't purchased yet to see if they fit better. And um, actually one of the, the nicest compliments I've gotten, I've, I've done a, a number of portfolio reviews now for lettering is I often have been told that uh, the fonts that I'm selecting or the line weights that I'm selecting uh, really work with the the art underneath it. So in that sense, it feels like the art, the lettering should be invisible, but really it's it's not, it's a little more nuanced than that. Maybe the way to think about it, I mean, now I am not a uh, that musically inclined, but my wife was teaching my kids how to jam uh, mm -hmm. on keyboards with her on guitar while they were singing. And she was explaining to them about finding the same key. And I think in this case, it's yeah. the same kind of thing. Your lettering, you're looking for the key that the, mu that the, that the art is in and matching Absolutely. that key so that it doesn't create this discord between uh, reading that pulls you out of the reading experience. You don't want to notice the lettering too closely, but you also don't want to um, forget the style of the art. Yeah. You know, it shouldn't... Yeah, like... Uh... John Carpenter was quoted as saying um, soundtrack music in his movies, he thinks of it like wallpaper. It's yeah. there, but you're not paying attention to it. Yeah, that's exactly what yeah. it is. So yeah. like, for example, if I say, uh, say I had lettered Dragon Nanny, if I had taken that book and I had tried to apply some sort of like gothic or like typewriter style font into the word balloons, it would jump off the page as being amateur and looking awful. Um, so it's things like that, that you have to be paying attention to when you're, when you're setting stuff out. Like I've done, Gregory, I've done a number of projects for you now, and I'm not going to say that you have a house style, but certain parts, certain aspects of your projects are similar. And so I know kind of the sort of font types that I should be looking at for a lot of them. I'm not going to be going and pulling super like comic sans comic-y fonts for your sort of projects when I can find something that's a little bit more um, noir, for example. Well, one thing I noticed about you as a letterer is that, and one thing I like is that um, you spend a lot of time decoding where the negative space is on the page, even if there's art there, what is unessential to the flow of the reading and try mm -hmm. to put the bubble in those places. But you also 
like if I use a specific example, you did the lettering on um, sketches from the front lines, the book we did for the Ontario Medical Association about frontline yeah. COVID workers. Um, and I used a different art style there than I'm doing in Eye Collector, which is yeah. a very deep, dark, dreamlike, madness fog. Because uh, sketches was such a fun and happy book <laughs> to do in the first place. Well, it was, it was, it was, a. Uh, it was a necessary, is necessary story okay. to tell. But the art was very light in yep. that book, right? Like the, it's just, you know, just blue washes and uh, light line work and pretty straightforward storytelling. Uh, and there was kind of an economy of how you stack the bubbles so that, you know, the, really what it came down to is that more people reading sketches from the front lines are not comics readers. Mm -hmm. So there was this way you would stack, even though it was contrary to how I maybe think about comics, I got the sense that you were stacking it in a way that just made it easy to read for a person who hadn't read comics. This bubble above this block, above this bubble, above this block. Whereas in Eye Collector, it's for people who understand the medium a little better. And so, yeah. you know, you have to let your eye lead you across the page. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the other things that um, is really involved with lettering is knowing is understanding how most people read comic books and knowing that you're kind of the last, you're the last person with any say on the direction that people are going to read through them. So, and it's, you know, there, there's a, a thousand examples out there of ways in which like Kirby used his art to direct the, the way that your eye travels along a page. Um, and it's similar to lettering also where you always have to be cognizant that you're not placing word balloons in places that are going to get in the way or are going to drag people off course of that reading direction. Um, so it's just another one of those things that you kind of have to keep in mind uh, when you're working through your projects all the time. Like it's, it's one of those things that you have to be constantly vigilant for. It's not something that you make a decision at the beginning, like a font, and then just let it ride out till the end. I have a specific lettering question. Hmm. So far in your lettering career, have you ever done the thought balloons? Have you done thought balloons yet? I have done thought balloons. So the, but I haven't had a chance to do, to try out the new way of making thought balloons that I've learned. So um, in traditional lettering, thought balloons, we're gonna get, now we're gonna get into Adobe Illustrator stuff as opposed to the Photoshop stuff. Um, traditional thought balloons just, just use they just use the pucker and bloat effect yeah. to create the cloud like that's my new look. band name um pucker. yeah jo justin knows exactly what i'm talking about <laughs> i do um so but what's really annoying that i've been guilty of in the past and i know is something that the real professionals like like nate picos of blambot and um like the comic craft guys, the, the, the career letterers say that amateur letterers shouldn't do is if you have a page that has different thought balloons that you just copy that same thought balloon and ch enlarge and change the size because it changes the proportion of the, we'll say the fluffy parts of the balloon. So a smaller balloon is going to look like it's a bunch of tiny little clouds and the bigger balloons will have, you know, the much larger. Yeah, the small ones look like things. angry mouths, like teeth Ex almost. If they get exactly, and so what they what they say is you should be recreating um, those 
those balloons for every single size and just have sort of a bank of different sizes that you can use and manipulate. Um, but one of the techniques that I've seen online that I haven't had a chance to do yet, and I'm not going to get into it because I'll just skim over it, is you are, you're going to take just different sized circles and mer merge them into one shape. And that creates much more of a, like a genuine cloud-like look. It's not, a, it's not uniform all the way around. Um, so I have done that in terms of thought balloons. But the weird thing about modern comics is people have gotten away from thought balloons and now we get more of monologue captions. But yes, I've done them both. All right, we'll use Pulsar level five with a subsonic implosion factor. What? Just shoot the damn thing on the count of three. One, two, three. I have uh, that, that Move Patrol project. I've been thinking about just bringing back. I've never... Okay, so... You've never done a thought balloon? At the time when thought balloons were considered so passe. And so I just yeah. went heavy into that narrative block, right? Which are essentially thought yeah. balloons without the ballooning. Yeah. Um, but because I want this project to feel a little bit light and a little bit like those old romance comics, even though it has giant robots and monsters in it, um, nothing says an old school Roma romance comic like a will she won't the she thought balloon. And so uh, this was my way of getting free advice without paying my letter, I guess. Yeah, don't, uh, if you want to be lazy, just use the pucker and bloat. And if you want to make it new age, you can do it yourself now with the, the merge tool or whatever it is in Pathfinder. I've got a lettering question based on the thought bubble thing. Okay. Thought bubbles. Is it the idea of a thought bubble that was passe or is possibly still passe now? Or is it the actual physical look of it that's passe? No, it's the look. Yeah. It's the okay, look. So I, I would argue conversely that um, comics almost lean too heavily on narrative captions now when so, they're not so, doing, when they're not using dialogue enough. It's just the look of it. Secondary to that question that I've noticed, especially, um, with um you see it a lot with justice league based stuff or at least the scott Snyder capullo stuff i'm not like metal um they just do a thing where they establish early what each thing is like what a mm. wonder woman they always have little icons like. in them right yeah so it tells yeah. you this background this icon but yeah. you're going to lose the icon eventually and you're just going to get the color so like if it's just the physical look of it, can't you just design a new thought bubble, establish it early on, and then just use that? Totally. You're a maverick, Steve. A maverick. Oh, what can I say? Are we That's... ready? Are we ready for these innovations? Yeah. In... Couldn't you do like a wispy, like you totally could. Cloud. But that's actually that a different concept. Cloud. That concept, something that I learned in in a creative writing class that I in the one creative writing class that I took is if you want to use a rule as long as you establish it to your reader early enough, you can carry it on through the rest of the book and no one will really question it as long as you're consistent. Yeah, yeah. you just have to have consistency for sure. Um, I mean, one of my big consistent things um, that is 100% based on a visual preference when it comes to lettering, and I, am not, I don't consider myself a letter. I do letter and I have lettered many of my own comics and I've done, I did the lettering on say, will I see with Dave Robertson, things like that. But I don't consider myself a letterer because I'm, I don't like the conformity of how lettering is supposed to be. If it were up to me, uh, word balloons would be round and like perfect spheres with their little tails off of them. Um, 
That's Which, how I did your first book. Or your, I know. Those three-page preview. You handed me pages, and they said perfectly round circles That's that right. I had to and, fit words into. And in order to, like, train Lyndon or maybe to punish him, I made the balloons and said, this is where the lettering is going to fit. Because <laughs> anything other than that would change the visual language of the story to my eye. I had decided exactly who would speak and where. And I, this story we're talking about um, had a... Uh, Midnight this monster where the tail of the word balloon went all the way into its mouth as if the words were issuing from deep in its throat, not from out of its mouth. And so I just, I had this idea and I wanted it to be intact without any other input. Um, aside from the, what the letter fonts looked like. Um, so I'm a bit of a, um, hmm, what would you say? Prima Donna when it comes to some of that stuff. I like to think that our trust relationship has grown since then. I think so. Yeah, I think so. I'm uh, toying with the idea of uh, uh, sending you Moon Patrol to see what you would do with the lettering. I've got a rough, like a real smash up job, kind of like we did on Arena City, where I just like, mm -hmm. I've been smashing in where things are going to be said, but I haven't yep. built my proper lettering yet. Um, and I guess maybe since we're going so far into process for the dear listener, what I do that way is when I'm making comics pages, I link them into an InDesign document so that the Photoshop document appears as the illustration. And then I make little blocks of text in InDesign and I just drop in who's saying what, where, in roughly the positioning I think it will fit so that I know whether or not it's gonna cover up a little or a lot of the art. And then I can rewrite it quite easily that way. And then I would send those, uh, what I call shitty comics PDFs over to Lyndon and he would decode that into, uh, you know, giving me something that passed as a readable, beautiful lettering pass. Oh, that so, some of the shitty comments? So, com so complimentary, a beautiful, readable lettering. Well, it, you know, it really, especially Midnight, or pardon me, Arena City had so many font needs. weird. Yeah. It was weird, yeah. There's some weird fun. stuff in there. Um, <laughs> so, well, gentlemen, I have greatly enjoyed this conversation, but uh, uh, alas, our time has elapsed, so we're going to have to bring you on to talk more about process um, on a future episode of Super Pulp Science, and hopefully it will not take two years before you guys come back together. Um, although, who knows if even the world will still be here two years from now. You know, you never know. It's true. We'll all just be digital entities living in the system. I'll just be on my backup drive, hoping yeah. desperately someone will plug me into something. So that I can live yeah, it. Lost in the world. mess that yeah. is your file sorting system. I'll also be on Google Drive just for safety. So yeah, two spots. Two also, spots. I just I just <laughs> noticed. Uh, oh, you got Dragon Annie in your background. It's right there. Yeah, Dragon Annie the in my place background. Place of honor right on your shelf. Look at that. Yeah. yeah, it's on display. Didn't even realize it. <laughs> um, well, gentlemen, this has been Super Pulp Science. This is Gregory Kamichak encouraging all of you to join the fight and make comics.